What shall we do? What shall we do? Now, you ask that question in life all the time, don't you? I guess with various things. You know, you find out some information about some person. Maybe at the office. Maybe in the, in the house that you share and so on. Perhaps they're in danger or perhaps they're being a little bit naughty with something in the, the accounts or whatever it may be. Now, what shall you do? It's a question, isn't it? You, you ask it all the time. I used to teach a boy uh, when I was a teacher. and annoy- He was annoyingly good at everything. Um, he was extremely bright, extremely able at music, um, a very, very, very talented sportsman. And he played county sports in all sorts of manner of sports. It was so frustrating for everyone around him. And um, I knew something about William. His name was William Shutsmith. I hope he's listening. Um, that no other boy or no other teacher in the school knew. And I had to ask myself this question. What shall I do with that information? What shall we do? It's the central question of this passage. Do you have a look at it? Verse 37. Have a look at it. It's there. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? The the information, these, as you see, verse 22, men of Israel, they're described as that. The the information they've heard is utterly extraordinary. Do you see what they're referring to? So you see from verses 22 through to verse 36... Peter the Apostle, the empowered with the Holy Spirit, and his very big mouth way, had probably stood up in front of the kind of gathered, gathering in Jerusalem and blared out. What did he blare out? Well, firstly, he began to show them what, what, had, you know, what had been happening. Shouldn't have surprised them at all, because it had been foretold in the Old Testament. He, he kind of works his way through what we saw last week in the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. But then Peter continues, just as we've heard there. And he shows the the crowd that are gathered in his very big mouth way that the best way to understand Pentecost, all that had gone on with the gift of the Holy Spirit, the best way to understand the giving of the Spirit is to respond to the Spirit. The best way to understand Pentecost is to respond to Pentecost. And so therefore, in verses 22 to 36, Peter presents to the crowd, he presents Jesus. The one who at Pentecost had given his spirit to enable and empower the church. And to enable and empower you and me. Therefore what we see in our first point there is Peter, he presents Jesus to the crowd. And firstly he begins by, he presents to the crowd Jesus' life, his ministry you might describe it. And have a look down verse 22. Firstly it begins, he says, he's accredited by God, that's what Peter describes. That is, he's recognised that God is working in and through him, that he is God. He was the only one who could do mir- all those miracles, those signs and wonders, as he, as he describes them there. All of those things that are evidenced in the Bible, but evidence elsewhere too. All the ancient literature, whether it's um, Jewish or whether it's Greco-Roman uh, history. You know, go to the British Museum, the British Library, you'll see the documentation. People who hated Jesus could not deny that Jesus seemed to be able to demonstrate characteristics that only God could possess. So Peter firstly presents Jesus, his life, his ministry. Secondly, he presents Jesus' death. Look at that. It wasn't a mistake. God didn't lose his grip on all of the whole world and his control on a particular day. Verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose. His foreknowledge, in the original words, prognosis there. 
And you, with the the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. God purposed the death of his only son. Why? Because he hated him? No. Because he loved you and me. He was nailed to a cross, died in agony. Probably as of, of, of asphyxiation, unable to breathe, unable to pull himself up on a Roman cross. And he did that, was handed over by God's set purpose and foreknowledge so that you and I could be loved more than we would ever dare to imagine. So Jesus presents, firstly, his life and ministry. Secondly, his death. Thirdly, um, Jesus, uh, Peter presents Jesus' resurrection. You see that in verse 24 through to verse 32. He's buried in a borrowed grave, but not for long. Verse 24, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. I mentioned this at a prayer meeting the other day. It's a moral impossibility to keep hold, death to keep hold of Jesus. It can't happen because he is the only perfect one. How could the one who had done nothing wrong, the whole with the only man who has ever lived a perfect life, continue to face the consequences of imperfection, rebellion, or sin as the Bible calls it? The consequences of sin being death. Death could not hold him. It was a moral impossibility. Just as Psalm 16 had foretold, and Peter reminds his readers, you see that kind of quoted there. Jesus lived a perfect life, he dies a gruesome death, was raised to life because death could not hold him. And now we see, he moves on, verse 33, 36, he is now raised. Jesus is raised. Peter presents that Jesus is raised. He is vindicated. He goes up to heaven and is put in his rightful position at the right hand of his father. Again foretold, Psalm 110, Peter points it out to the crowd. So that's really our first point. I've kind of rattled through that on purpose really. But uh, Peter presents Jesus. And then we get to that question. Verse 37. What are we going to do? I mean Jesus, God's son who died on the cross, raised in your life. Now sits at the right hand of his heavenly father. What are you going to do with that kind of information? Right now, today in your own heart. Now you could do, you could pick a few kind of responses that the crowds have shown throughout the Gospels and also in Jerusalem. You could pity Jesus, couldn't you? You could say, oh, poor bloke, got himself nailed to a cross. Looks a bit brutal. Oh, that's a shame. You could pity Jesus. I think you know people who do that. Or you could mock Jesus, couldn't you? As the crowds did at his crucifixion. You know, call yourself the son of God. Why don't you get yourself down off that cross? It's a bit pathetic if you call yourself the son of God. I guess you know people who do that too. And the question for the crowd is the same for us. What shall we do? What shall we do with this information, this good news about Jesus? You remember that pupil I used to teach? William Chuck Smith. Now I, I know good news about Jesus, but I knew this really great news about William See, William played golf, and he was slightly embarrassed about playing golf. It wasn't cool in our school to play golf. And he thought it was kind of just for elderly gentlemen in their retirement. And so he kept really quiet about his love of golf. And at the age of 16, he was British schoolboy champion. 
But no one knew. Not one person in the whole school. His family and I knew. Because I met him on a golf course one day. His dad decided he needed a bit of humbling. So he entered into the, the national amateur tournament. I think it was at Wentworth or somewhere like that. All the adults. All the best adults in the whole country. And um, the tournament uh, happened. And he won it. At the age of 16. <laughs> And he won himself a Lexus car. It was sponsored by Lexus. And he won himself a Lexus 4x4 car. And it was quite amazing. What good news. And I, I knew about this. His dad whispered it to me. He said, it, it was meant to humble him. It didn't do it complete opposite. It was a but um, he told me, and I, I was going, what should I do with this information? You know, we're, William himself, he was really worried about what people would think. But I thought, I knew better. Okay, so I got to an assembly one day. I invited an old boy of the school to come and present the cup to him in front of, you know, the thousand boys of the school. Colin Montgomery was the old boy's name. He was quite a good golfer. So in he came and he presented the book. Well done, William. And, and everyone was like, wow, you know, William's like that British champion. And it was incredible. And then we invited the director of Lexus to come along. And he got to the front and addressed the crowd. And he said, well, I'm afraid, William, um, you're only 16. I know you won the car, but... I'm afraid we can't give it to you because you can't drive. And then he started walking off. And you can imagine all the sympathetic boys. They were going, yeah, you know, like, you haven't won a car. And it's like, as he went. But then he walked back to the microphone. He said, but next year when you're 17, we'll pay for you to learn to drive. Then you can choose any car in the range. And we will insure it for you until you leave university. And Lexus is the board. We've decided to sponsor you through university if you'd represent our company. Okay, then. That was all right. What shall we do? I mean, all of us, the press, the director, me as a teacher, we wanted to respond. We wanted to celebrate. We were all going, come on, William, tell everyone. You're a great golfer. You want to celebrate. But what about Jesus? The news is better What do you want to do with it? See, Peter presents Jesus to the crowd. And what are you going to do with Jesus? It's the same question in the crowd. It should be in your heart and mind now. Verse 37. What shall we do? Well, Peter then moves on. Really, verse 37 39. It's our third point here. And, and kind of points us, doesn't he? He says, look, this is how you respond. You've got this information about Jesus. That's the good news, the gospel. How are you going to respond? Look, he gives us some pointers here. Firstly, he shows us that Jesus offers us salvation in verses 37 to 39. See, all that has come before, all of that information that he's given is utterly meaningless. If there's nothing for us to gain. You know, a nice bloke um, dying on a cross in that kind of brutal kind of way. Under Roman rule. Well, that's not an unusual event. Every time you'd have walked in Jerusalem at that time, the, the road would have been lined with crosses of people who'd come against kind of Roman rule. That was no kind of unusual thing. But look, verse 37, when the people heard this, that is, all they'd heard in verse 22 to 36, they were cut to the heart. And Peter said to the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? He then goes on, look, listen. Repent. Be baptised. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The cross is meaningless unless it has something to do with us, and it does. Listen, look, what do we need to do? Firstly, repent. 
simply means to turn. It's obvious, those of you know this. It, it means turning from a life living your own way, living by your rules and ignoring God and turning toward God, living for him and following him. Now, it doesn't stop the fun. It actually makes sense of the fun of this life. Literally turn to God, listen to him, follow him. Then he goes on, be baptised as a symbol of that turning, of that new life, being made a new creation that is symbolised with baptism for all who would receive him, symbolically washed. And all that happens, not in our own strength, but in the power and the name of Jesus. You see, the name, in the name of Jesus Christ. It is his power. He helps us turn to God. He helps us repent. He might be prompting you to do so that right now. Have you been running away from God? Doing things your own way? Here's the great prize. Look what it's for. What does it lead to? It says it here. For the forgiveness of your sins. The cross that we heard about in verse 23 is just a barbaric, blood-curdling monstrosity of injustice if it has no benefit for you or me. But God has allowed his only son to suffer and die that, wa- die that way. Why? Because he loves you and me so much. William, that pupil I mentioned, there's a bit of a theme going on through today, isn't it? But there we go. Um, I remember one day we were on a ski trip. We were on about the fifth or the sixth floor in a hotel. And we had these little balconies. I was woken up at about three in the morning. And I thought it was Spider-Man, but it wasn't. It was William. He was climbing along all of the balconies um, of this hotel at about, five, about three in the morning on about the fifth floor. And as a good teacher, I kind of opened the door and just looked at him and went, bed. <laughs> and he went to bed. The next morning, there was no excuse there was a little letter underneath my door and it just simply apologised and he said, please forgive me. And I did. He'd been caught. He'd been seen doing something which he could, which he should not have been doing. And it's a silly illustration, but likewise, you know this, but God has seen everything. Everything in your heart, everything in your mind, Every action. He's seen every little detail of your life. God sees everything. And that is whether we've been ignoring him or blatantly rebelling against him. We all deserve a justice for that. We've rebelled. We've turned our backs on God. And if he were not, if he were to try and overlook that, you would render God unjust in his character. But he's not just just, he is also loving. And he has loved us so much that he's willing to give us his perfect son to take all of that turning my back on God, all of that deserves. And he did it on the cross. I describe it to my boys like this, and you know, well, it's just a little swap, isn't it? That Jesus takes the punishment that my sin deserves on himself. And that perfect life that he lived, yeah, it's counted as mine. Sometimes it, it, the Bible describes it as I'm, I'm clothed in his righteousness, his perfect life. It's a swap. It's really simple. So when you stand before God at this, the end of this very short life, he will, if you have put your trust in Jesus, see you as perfect. 
utterly perfect, spotless. And therefore, as Jesus has been raised to new life, so will you for eternity. But you haven't to wait too long for the assurance that of that as the, the Holy Spirit has been given to us, all of those who, who have repented. And it's, it's kind of a down payment, the Holy Spirit. I don't look any different. I don't really feel much different, to be honest. But I've been given the Spirit and I can see its work throughout me. And we'll see more of that in a moment. Because the Spirit's there as a helper ahead for the days ahead. So, finishing uh, just a little section, verse 41, we see that Jesus is, he kind of offers us support in these kind of last days as we wait for to be with him face to face. Look at verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000, one day. And if you go through Acts as we're going to over this term, you'll see more and more thousands were added on days to come. The followers of Jesus, they were growing in number and have never ever stopped growing. Did you know that? Even today, more and more people have heard this good news around this world and have turned to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. They've, they've had the same question. You know, what shall we do? And they've repented. They've turned to God. And with his help, they've trusted Jesus' death on the cross for their sins in their place. And therefore, they are, life is open to them now in a fun, fulfilling way that live, is for now. And we'll go on for eternity. So what shall we do? What are you going to do with this good news of Jesus? Can I urge you as winsomely as I possibly can, do what Peter says. That is, do what God says in his love. Repent and put your trust in Jesus Christ. Now, that's how we should initially respond and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit there. But the passage goes further. Do you spot that from verses 42 then through to 47. See, that's our initial response to Jesus. But I guess many of us, you kind of go, yeah, I've been nodding the whole way through politely. Yeah, I've got that. I've done that. That's brilliant. Yeah, fantastic. Nice reiteration of the gospel there. Thank you. Fantastic. Let's move on, shall we? I'm a bit beyond that. Well, that's what we see here. Because what we now see is how the Jerusalem church responded to the gospel. In verses 42 to 47, have repented, they've trusted in Christ, now empowered with the Holy Spirit. What is the response of the church? And what, what was the evidence in their lives, within their church life, of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit? Now let's look at that last point, verse 43, 47. How did the church respond? I think there are four evidences of the work of the Holy Spirit here. Very quickly, so don't panic. Be careful though. As we look at them, don't overlook them. You know, in, in just your, oh, we're nearing the end here, let's just... Don't overlook them, they are humbling, I think. The implications are, is this you? Is this us? Now let's have a look how, what evidence was amongst them of the, of the spirit within them. Firstly, I'm going to say that they were a learning church. Do you see that, verse 42? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? Because you go back to the previous verse and you think, they've got 3,000. They're probably good to devote themselves to teaching. There's a lot of work to be done amongst them. Yeah, they did devote themselves. But they weren't looking, if you notice, for kind of experiences. Or to remove their intellect from that devotion. They simply sat down at the apostles' feet and were hungry to learn. What does that look like today? I want to try and get a bit more practical here. The, you know, the fact that the church was devoted, I think it goes a little bit further, though, doesn't it? Than just interested. 
or fascinated. I fear that, that we fear the label of zealous sometimes. Or fundamental. Because of all the cultural baggage that goes along with those two words. To be zealous and, and devoted is, is never seen as anything but positive within the Bible. And it requires humility because you know, we need to accept all the teaching that we can get from anywhere that we can get it. And it requires also a commitment, doesn't it, of both our time and our energy. So people will notice that you've left a little bit earlier from the office because you are devoted to the apostles' teaching as you come together and look at it, perhaps in home group on Tuesday night. Will you be there? Will you make a weekly commitment to perhaps leave the office a little bit earlier? And just be able to cope with what your friends might say and your colleagues might say? How how devoted are you? I wonder if one of those 3,000 who were added to the church in Jerusalem in verse 41, if they walked into our church... Perhaps if they walked into your life and would be able to shadow you for a day and that kind of thing. I wonder what they would say of you. Would they say, oh, this chap's a devoted chap to the Lord Jesus Christ? Or perhaps a little compromise in a few areas? I don't know, I've done this and I have asked for forgiveness for this this week. I, have you ever mocked someone who's utterly devoted for the learning of Jesus Christ. He says, oh, he's a, bit, he's a bit over the top. It's easy to do, isn't it? The church in Jerusalem responded to Jesus. And they were devoted. Devoted. They were a learning church. Secondly, they were a loving church. They devoted themselves. You see that word? It's a fellowship word there. Sometimes misused. The Greek word is koinonia. Some of you all know that. And they express their fellowship and their love. Firstly, as they shared in their commitment of Christ together. Um, I wonder how much we talk about the weather and our jobs more than we talk about Christ. It would be a challenge when you're going for your half-priced burger at Pig and Wicks across the road. Now, what will you talk about? Ooh, miserable weather. <coughs> you know, those typical things that we do. Or will you talk about Christ? Commend Christ. Encourage Christ in others. Secondly, they express not only their commitment to Christ, but also they express their fellowship and their love in, in sharing what they had with what the, the people around them. And we see that worked out. It's using the same word. Look at verse 44 and 45 there. All the believers were together and had, had everything in common. The common word there is koina, which the fellowship word comes from the same kind of root word there. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to everyone as he had need. Now, this isn't compulsory kind of hippie community living here where we kind of have mutual ownership of every possession. You know, I'll borrow your car today, you borrow mine tomorrow, you know, so on. It's not that, okay? That is a slightly cultic kind of practice and it isn't being described here. Why? We know that because they gave voluntarily. It was their choice. They, were, they, they, they did it because they loved the people. They saw need in those that they loved within the church and those around them and they gave. They were a loving church. Are we? I guess we do what we can. And certainly I want to pass on from Aidan, who's one of our members here, who uh, has had a back operation recently. He, he wanted to say thank you because you have loved him. 
Some of you have visited him, some of you have given him food, and he really appreciates that. Because he's basically lying down for about six weeks now. I wonder if we find one element, though, of fellowship easier than the other. You know, when it requires just opening up our wallets and taking out a, te- you know, whatever it may be. That's a little bit easier, but the fellowshipping that's evidenced here is that devotion to one another. That can be a little bit more taxing, can't it? We have in, in common our Saviour and Lord, but, but do we devote ourselves to that kind of commonality, encouraging each other to see Christ in our lives, working through our lives, encouraging each other in our faithfulness to him? We find that a little bit more difficult, don't we, sometimes? So they were a learning church, they were a loving church. Thirdly, they were a worshipping church. Their fellowship was not only expressed in loving each other, but in their corporate worship too. You see that in a couple of ways, in prayer, but also in the sharing of the Lord's Supper. So you get, and they also get do it in formal ways, in the temple courts, and in one another's houses, in informal ways. But wherever they went, they were delighted to be worshipping their saviour. Do you see that delight? Verse 46. They have their glad and sincere hearts. How are you at the moment? Are you kind of a bit dry and a bit weary? Kind of, you're feeling a long way from God? Or perhaps you do have a glad and sincere heart. And if you do, praise God for it. Notice that everything is corporate here though. You know, if you've isolated yourself away from the people of God, away from his church, away from the apostles teaching us, looking in his word, if you've removed yourself from that... And feel so far from God. What do you expect? See the church in Jerusalem. They were glad. They had sincere hearts. Because they looked around at others. And were encouraged in their faith. By others. They heard their encouragements. And reminders that Christ was risen. That the spirit hadn't been given into their hearts. Don't remove yourself. If you're feeling like you're going away from God. The last thing you need to do is isolate yourself. So where are you? Where are we corporately? Oh, we might be a learning church, pride ourselves in that. We might be a loving church, oh, we look after people really well. But I guess that will wane if we are not devoted to being a worshipping church with glad and sincere hearts. Oh, we'll end up going through the motions, I'm going to learn really hard. I'm going to love really generously. But I guess at some point, if things get tough, you'll begin to ask why. And that usually happens in times of struggle in your life. Perhaps a relationship, an illness. It will cause you to question things. And if you are not, and if we are not a worshipping church, devoted with glad hearts, captivated by the Lord Jesus Christ, that good news that we've heard, that is a dangerous place to be. They were a learning, loving, worshipping church. And also they were an evangelistic church. Lastly and very briefly. In all, these, all of those things, all those evidences of the Spirit's work within this church. Do you see how they're linked? I mean, it, it's pretty obvious. If you learn more of Christ, you'll love Christ more. You'll love God's people more. And as a result, you'll want to worship him more. And likewise, you will then want to tell other people more. It's all linked. And look at what happens. Lastly, verse 47 at the end. 
And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. See, the Lord is sovereign. The Lord does the work, if you like. But don't be ignorant to think that the church in Jerusalem did nothing, that they said nothing. They just sat down in church and said, oh yeah, God will bring everyone in. I don't think so. And the church's activity wasn't sporadic either. Do you see that? Daily, the number was added to the church. It was part of their lives to share the gospel, the good news with others around them. Sometimes when you've been a Christian for a number of years, you can look back and I guess some of you will remember the good old days. Do you remember those? They might just be a few years back. You have romanticised them already. When you invited everything that moved that went to church. And seemingly everyone seemed to come. And people did become Christians under God's sovereignty and his grace. Can you remember how blessed that time was? How exciting that time was? What's changed? Maybe nothing. But maybe something. Just maybe you just need to be challenged by the church in Jerusalem and see how devoted they were. And maybe you're the one that's changed. Because I think we know that God in his character is not changing and longs to bless his church and his people. And will add to our number. Maybe. Not certainly, but maybe. But the church in Jerusalem is a great example, isn't it, of those who were devoted and God-blessed. They were a learning church, a loving church, a worshipping church, an evangelistic church. So, what shall we do? Nothing or something? Whatever you do, I pray it will be for the glory of God's church. Which is actually the same as your good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's tempting, isn't it, to look back and read of these times and think, wow, I'd love to have been there. That must have been thrilling, um, if only. But we live in a time where we have your word, We have the apostles' teaching, of which we can be devoted to. We have the gift of your spirit, working in us and through us and amongst us. We have everything. So I guess the challenge for me personally is, as I look at the church in Jerusalem, do I devote myself to your teaching? Do I love those around me as much as they did? Am I thrilled by the Lord Jesus Christ and long to worship him? And do I share my faith with others as much as I ought? Lord, I'm challenged by this. I'm excited by this. But in answer to that question, what shall we do? I pray that all of us, with sincere hearts, would question what we need to do. Maybe nothing. Maybe something. But all for your glory we pray. Amen.